Thank you, Brian, very much. Good morning, everybody. Anyone else fancy this one? <laughs> just, just wondered, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to stand back and let someone else do this. But uh, yeah, it, it's occupied my mind, certainly for a, a week or two, and, and a little longer too. Um, two verses, that's all. Um, but there are other verses, obviously, in Scripture. Um, but things which we must give serious thought. Clearly, from what we've just seen, uh, marriage is not seen uh, the way many of us would see it. Uh, that parade of um, people, and you, you go to the same place and you get divorced in the same place that you got engaged, was it, or married, I can't remember, um, seems to me not to be where we're at here as, as a biblical community of God's people. I know the issues are sensitive. Um, I shall approach, I hope, with caution and sensitivity. Um, it's, it's not an easy subject to talk about. Um, it would be far easier to talk about, come unto me, all ye that labor, than this. But it's here. And, and therefore, we must see that Jesus felt the need um, to deal with the issue because it was relevant at the time. And of course, it still clearly is. The institution of marriage remains an issue in our culture, very much so. And it concerns us all. Whether this morning we're married here or we're not, we're all part of a family. It was our parents that gave us life. So in that sense, we've all been part, as it were, within a marriage context. And, and the other thing I would say is that marriage is clearly something which um, God sees as, as a kind of bedrock of society. It, it's something that, that gives us stability and framework. Not that singleness and other relationships don't, but at the heart of it, there is this thing that God's created that says, this is how I want to build my society on. Now, some in our world would say that the concept of marriage is out of date. Uh, we now live in the age of partnerships. Uh, the numbers of marriages are diminishing. The number of partnerships, whether civil or just arranged, are, are increasing. Uh, where people should be free to change a partner without feelings of guilt. You heard that two or three times because it's our choice as to who we form relationships with. Uh, and we can change that if we, if we want to. Let me be clear about one thing from the beginning. From the beginning, God's Word is committed to the concept of marriage from creation onwards. You cannot escape it. It starts there. The Old Testament talks about it. Jesus is committed to it. Paul realizes it's an issue of his day. So we must examine it and remember that God is committed to the idea of relationship in all its biblical forms. But our text today is about divorce and therefore we'll deal with the issues of marriage and divorce. I'm also acutely aware, because I know many of you quite well, that there are those of you that have been affected, either yourself or in your family, um, by divorce. And it's important that we live in an age where relationships come in many and various forms. So we look at God's Word to see what it says. Now, many people have interpreted these texts on divorce very differently. Matthew 5.31, which was read to us, is not the only biblical material. So let me paint the context for you that these different texts come in. We've got creation, we've got Deuteronomy, we've got Malachi, we've got Matthew, we've got Paul. The context, in the first century, divorce was not uncommon, uh, and it was sometimes abused. Hence, 
the writing of a certificate. Um, that came from Deuteronomy 24.1. Divorce was permitted in Moses' day, but it was regulated. So a divorced wife is issued with a final separation document. And you may sound that, think that sounds a bit legal and horrible, but it was for her protection. A husband, you won't believe this, but it's true, a husband could change his mind. So having chucked his wife out, he could in a few weeks, months, years, times decide, well, I'll have her back again. And he could do that at will. And therefore, Moses put something in which said, no, once that's happened, that's final. She is now free. She is now liberated from that relationship. Here is a certificate of divorce which says it, and she would have been handed it. In Jesus' day, uh, there is a variety of interpretations, even in Jewish society. Now, sit tight. Don't come and hit me when I say this, because I, I can just feel the vibes already. One sect of Judaism me said that a man could divorce his wife for a trivial reason, like producing a poor meal. I know. Isn't it dreadful? But it's there. They were called the Hillel sect of Jews, and they could just do that. Another sect believed that you could divorce somebody only on the grounds of unfaithfulness. Uh, what was more commonly called in those days indecency. And that's the area that causes us difficulty. When you use that word, what, what does it mean? Even that word was interpreted by some as simply having sex with somebody else, but by others, by loose or flirtatious behavior. Remarriage was allowed and even encouraged. In a Roman context, I didn't believe this when I first read it, even though it could be expensive, um, it was common in, in, for Jews, for, for Romans to, to divorce. Augustus, the Emperor Augustus, was so worried about it, he issued a decree that young divorced men should remarry to stop them behaving in loose ways on the streets at night. And this is the context in, in which we're looking. We have a Roman situation where many, many people, um, in fact, he issued an edict that they must divorce within 18 months to two years of their divorce, they must remarry by order of the state. So there's the context over those years of, of biblical history uh, of the way divorce was, was handled. Now, let me come secondly to Jesus' statement. It's no wonder, is it, in that context that Jesus felt he had to say something. So, as Brian has reminded us, you've heard that it's said, referring to all that I've been referring to, but I say unto you. So here is Jesus, and what does he do? Now, the it has been said uh, is a direct quote. He goes right back to Deuteronomy, but he goes right back to, to Genesis, and he says this, a man must leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, what we used to call, I think, leaving and cleaving. Now, you cannot escape from all the reading I've done, backwards and forwards through this, you cannot escape that here is Jesus' central point. This is Jesus' plan. It is one man, one woman for life. And the two key words in that statement in Genesis are united and one flesh. Now, one flesh 
uh, can sound a bit basic, can't it? But basically it means that in the act of sexual union, there is a closeness and intimacy which binds two people together as if they are one flesh. I don't know if you find this in your, your marriage, but um, we, we actually happened to us yesterday, um, that you, you both think in the same thing at the same time. Am I the only weird person that that happens to? Where you kind of say, oh, let's go to, oh, I was thinking that too. Now that is a product or one working out of one fleshness. It is that closeness that comes. It's as if Jesus is saying there is nothing closer or more intimate than the relationship between husband and wife. One flesh is about sexual union, but it's about deep intimacy. And it's that which God is up. Now, why is he after it? Quite simply, because that's what he wants too. Marriage is a picture that's used to illustrate the relationship between Jesus and his church. Close intimacy is what Jesus wants from us as a church. And he uses marriage to illustrate that. Now, that is not to subjugate other relationships to a lesser level. Nowhere in the Bible is that said. Singleness is not lesser than marriage. Being a good friend to a mate of the same gender is not lesser. But marriage is something which is put there for a specific purpose. And it's inescapable that God's plan was till death do us part. Which is why we, we do that when we do marriages here at the front and as we place our hand on the linked hands of the bride and the groom, we say what God has joined here. I always tell couples this is the moment of the marriage. This is deadly serious. Two hands together, your hand on top of it. What God has joined together, as I once heard it said, let not any guy muck about with. This is serious stuff. Now, nobody turns up to a wedding, do they? Thinking that divorce is going to happen. You come full of joy, full of hope, full of expectation, full of those years that lie ahead of you. But two things emerge here. Divorce is, and I'll say this as carefully as I can, divorce is the last option when a marriage is in difficulty. Everything which can be done should be done to rebuild, to repair, to put it together in a way that will honor God. Now, I guess I'm ancient enough to know that that can sometimes be brutally hard. But it is God's way, and we should be a community of love and grace that helps any marriage that's going through difficult times to rebuild, to restructure. And dare I say, not just structure, but to revitalize. Can I, can I share something personal? I'll probably get told off for this afterwards, but I'll give it a go. Uh, some of you know my wife's had a hip replacement, and she's been, in, uh, she's been in bed a lot of the time because she's got to rest it and move it around and all the rest of it. Now, I think she could have divorced me countless times on the ground of a rubbish meal being served up, you know? But I honestly think that it's, it's done something for us. So it's not just about the, you know, 
the romping around the bedroom stuff. It is about the intimacy of someone in trouble, someone struggling, who needs a cup of tea and a hug and needs someone to turn on, dare I tell you this, hello, hello, so you can have a chuckle. And that, to me, is what it's about. And what married people are doing to keep their relationship functioning well? What are, what are you doing if you're here as a married man or woman? What are you doing to build? What are you doing to restructure, to realign, to rethink, to rechallenge, to re-excite? Thirdly, God is a realist. Everyone in any relationship makes mistakes. No marriage is perfect. Tensions will occur. Problems will arise. I am profoundly grateful that God led me 56 years ago to a lady called Heather. She is not perfect. Uh, I guess that's obvious. So much of what she's given to me has been a treasure. But if you have a spare couple of weeks, Heather will also be able to tell you um, probably some of my imperfections. It will take you a couple of weeks to get through them all, okay? But they're there, and we have known the love and support of friends when issues have come up. But sometimes these issues grow and develop and reach a breaking point. Despite every effort to heal and restore, what does God think of that? Very much like we do. I wish it had never happened. That's why we get that verse in Malachi 2.15, where God says, I hate divorce. That's the reason. The reason for that is very simple. God has set this thing up. He set this beautiful thing called marriage up. And when he sees it breaks down, he hates it. I can't avoid that verse. I, it had to come up this morning, and I'm sorry. But what I want to be very clear about is does, it does not say God hates divorcees. No, 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 no. Because a divorce doesn't put you outside the orbit of God's love. It doesn't, it doesn't say you're no longer accepted in, in here or here or here. It doesn't say that. Now... Fourthly, the exception. Clearly God's heart is that divorce doesn't happen. You cannot draw that from Scripture. The divorce is wrong. It's not the ideal. But Jesus does put limits on it. He says, only for marital unfaithfulness. Now, the Greek word here used by Jesus is clearly one that defines this as sexual. You can't sort of say this kind of covers divorce on any grounds. It, it doesn't. The word is not that. But the Pharisees, in, later in Matthew, in chapter 19, verse 3, they come to, to Jesus and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and other reason? Now, that's come from the culture. That's come from the culture that they live in. And his response is again to go back to Genesis. It's to repeat, leave father, mother, one flesh for life. Refers back there and says that's, that's what it should be. But we must face the point where marriage has come to, where it has gone beyond brokenness. And I believe, and, and I think it's true, that marriages can get to a place where it is right for the couple to separate. 
having done all the work, I hope you've heard all that I've said before that, where we get to a place where it does seem right that this is true and has to happen. Now, we must reiterate that for those experiencing or having experienced a divorce, you, like every other human being created by God in his image, are much loved. And he still has that lovely verse, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, Jeremiah 29. And we must love and care for people who go through this dreadful experience of divorce. I've never seen a simple divorce. I've never seen a painless divorce. In all my years of ministry, I've never seen such a thing. Pain is always involved. Now, it's also worth looking at 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about the duties of husbands and wives and, and vice versa. Husbands should fulfill their duty to his wife. Uh, and this can get interesting, can't it? So we'll, we'll tread carefully here as well. But it's, it's quite simply, each, and it is mutually in 1 Corinthians 7, has the responsibility to love and nurture one another. Now, that, in, that passage involves food. So the fact that I've been going to Sainsbury's a lot more than I usually do means that I must keep the home fed. That's right and proper. Clothing. I haven't bought any clothes for Heather yet, but not this time anyway. But Christmas is coming. But it's also in conjugal love. That's part of it. That we don't turn off the sex bit when we get to a certain age. It's one flesh. And therefore, now the passage is clear that there may be times and periods uh, where that has to stop uh, for maybe a period of prayer or for medical, physical reasons but that there should still be, in that context, um, a physical expression of love one to the other. And Paul is very clear about that. Now, uh, some people have said over the years that this is where um, a divorce can be uh, something on the grounds that if that isn't happening, that's a grounds for divorce. I think that's pushing it. But there are other people who go back to the, the, the Matthew 5:31 verse and say, okay, adultery automatically annuls a marriage, if that's the case, but does neglect, does abuse. Many would say it is, that by behaving in a certain way, you have effectively annulled that marriage. Now, I'm giving you interpretations here. I'm not giving you my view. But I'm saying, this is, the, this is why I said to Brian earlier, I'd rather give a lecture on this for an hour than I would a 20-minute sermon, because there's so many nuances here. But some people would say that that neglect, that abuse, is grounds for divorce. Along with the freedom for widows to remarry, which is very clear in that passage as well, the passage is clearly, 1 Corinthians 7, trying to emphasize that a marriage, again, is so special and important and every effort should be made to keep it together. Now, finally, remarriage. Um, this is the bit you've been waiting for, isn't it? I've read and read on this, and, and it's, it's a very, very difficult topic. If you take all the passages in the Scriptures to say this is a definitive view, those of, there are those who said that remarriage is always wrong that marriage has happened, it's been 
a divorce has happened uh, and that is now the end of marriage for you. They get that from the passage that we've just had read to us. But there are many others who say um, you're, you're divorcing your wife as an adulteress and therefore that cannot be so. Remember that both the cultures, Jewish and Roman, suggest that it can happen. In Matthew 19, the disciples found that teaching very hard. There is, they said in verse 12, they said, well, isn't it better that, that you don't marry? Isn't it better that you don't even get into it? And Jesus says that marriage is for some and not for others. Now, the complexity of this means, I think, a definitive answer uh, is very hard to give. I've moved on this over the years. I've read and and dealt with people. And I've been so much exercised since Simon asked me to do this that balancing the tension between what I believe God's Word says and, and a pastoral imperative to love and care for God's people. And I've come to the place where I think it is possible to read, particularly 1 Corinthians 7, and say that if there is a victim, as one can define it, within a divorce situation, then that person is perfectly free, under God's blessing, to remarry and to rebuild their lives in a new and hopefully better relationship. Now that is is something which um, I've talked to four senior clergy now and, and asked what they would say, and they say pastoral imperatives have driven us to the place where they see that a divorce was necessary to avoid any more pain and where somebody then meets someone who they can spend their life with and have a wonderfully joyous relationship with. Uh, One of my daughters-in-law was brought up as a um, by by a single mum. Uh, the father produced Joe and shot off when he found that Barbara was pregnant. That's Joe's mum. Now, Barbara lived with Joe for many, many, many years. Um, long after Joe was married, she met a guy who was a brilliant man, spent his life putting shot fronts in, Mike. And she married him and she had five wonderful blissful years of marriage before he died of cancer. I buried him. Now, I cannot look Barbara in the face and say that after what you went through, a guy gets you pregnant, shoots off. We get the product of that, a wonderful daughter-in-law. And there's a mum who finds someone with whom she finds happiness. I cannot find anything in Scripture that says It is not right for Barbara to experience the joy of a new relationship, which God knows she would have loved it to have gone on longer. But she looks back on it and says, thank God for those five years of very happy life that she had. So that's where I am. I don't see that any of those scriptures debar the victim from remarrying and experiencing joy and happiness in that new relationship. So let me sum up what has been a very quick, sharp move through, through something which is, which is really hard, isn't it? 
The first point I must clearly reiterate is that God's plan is for marriage to be a man and woman for life. So it must not be entered into lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. That's the marriage service booklet. It's not something you muck about with. So some of the stuff we saw up there, I cringe at. Because I want the preparation for marriage to be done in a way that is not light or selfish, but reverent and responsible. Now, we as a church have a responsibility here, don't we? I know that marriage prep is done. Marriage prep is crucial. But also, all of us, as we relate to different people within the congregation, have a duty of care to married couples. If we see a couple with young children struggling, and there are some, aren't there? There always are. That we have a duty of prayer and care for them to support them as best we can and to give them anything practical which will help them through that. So God's plan, those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. God's word from creation to, to the end holds that up. Secondly, God's word acknowledges that marriages will end before death. Please forgive me that a man who's been married 55 years has been talking to you this morning and hopefully not being patronizing or gloating over the fact that that's what I am. But I've been constantly challenged about being sensitive to those of you who have experienced divorce and we must be those people that are sensitive and caring and open to the issues that marriage raises. Thirdly, these issues of divorce and remarriage are not simple and should never be reduced. One of my clergy friends who I spoke to said he will not write a policy on remarriage because every single situation, certainly that I've ever dealt with, is not the same as the one I dealt with before. It's got a different nuance. It's got a different twist. It's got a different coming together. It's, 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 they're all so different. And therefore, we must deal with a human problem like that, with love, with tenderness, with care, always bent on restoration if possible. But even when the break happens, to surround the people to whom it's happened, with the love that they will now be feeling as gone. That is so vital. So let us be people, God's people, here this morning, who value and support all those in marriage. But when it breaks down, to show those that are suffering love, care, tenderness. Because this stuff is precious. And we must do everything we can to rebuild it when it goes wrong. Let me pray and uh, back to Brian. Father, these things are not easy. They're not simple. But you taught them, so we must listen. So I pray that we will be a community of your people who seek to bring marriages, relationships back together when they fall apart that we must love and support all of God's people in whatever relationship they're in Lord teach us so much that relationships matter
They must be held. They must be strengthened. They must be fed. And that each of us, if we are in a marriage at the moment, to perhaps look at ourselves and say, could we do something better? Could we do something different? To make sure that we build and rebuild and strengthen and go on doing that until death us do part. Lord, give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name.